Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. It's Wednesday, the 27th of October, and in this episode, a Japanese imperial wedding that's caused even more controversy than Harry and Meghan. Now, yesterday, the Empress niece, Princess Marco, or former Princess Marco, married her university sweetheart, Komoro Kei. Now, because he's just a regular guy, she's had to let go of her imperial titles to be with him. I apologize for any burden I may have caused because of this marriage. Kay's existence is irreplaceable to me. So that's the former Princess Marco speaking at a press conference yesterday after she finally married Komodo Kay. Now, unlike Meghan and Harry, there was no fanfare, no live television broadcast. After waiting for years, they got married in the equivalent of a registry office in private. Here's what Komoro Kay said afterwards. I love Marco. I want to spend my one life with the person I love. I would like to start a beautiful family with Marco and do whatever I can to support her. So in this briefing, you're going to find out why this relationship upsets so many Japanese people and what the parallels are to the British royals. And you'll also find out what the couple have been through to finally get to this point of being married yesterday. What a crazy love story, Katrina. I love a crazy love story. I particularly (laughs) love this one. You know, that whole, the love that you can't have, Mm. but you need. I think there's a movie that's going to come out of this for sure. Absolutely. All right, before we tell you all about that story, let's get into today's headlines. Well, after getting the Nationals on board with net zero by 2050, the PM has announced the federal government's plan to get there. It is not a revolution, but a careful evolution to take advantage of changes in our markets. And it's not a set and forget plan. It has an insurance policy review mechanism to make sure that it keeps delivering for regional Australia. So the plan packaged together a number of previous announcements and offered no new substantial policy ideas. Most of the cuts will be made pursuing existing programs without any new legislation. And the Commonwealth is banking on technology that doesn't exist yet. Yeah, this has already brought some extreme criticism from the opposition and the Greens. They're calling it a scam and a fortune cookie. I've seen more detailed fortune cookies than the document released by the government today. So when you look at the graph on how we're going to get to net zero, there's a few technological categories. So there's 40% from a technology investment roadmap, 15% Mm -hmm. from global technology trends, 15% from future technology trends, and then up to 20% from carbon offsets. So that's where the criticism's coming from, that there are Mm. these sort of different technological categories um, that seem a little vague. One of them has already been mapped out, the Technology Investment Roadmap. Um, That's a $20 billion commitment, which raises the other big criticism, you know, this slogan of technology, not taxes. It's like, well, where does the 20 billion come from? Yeah, that's right. Um, They have to come from somewhere and that's really our taxpayer dollars. So it is a bit of a, it is a little bit misleading to say that, don't you think, Tom? I think so. Yeah, that, that statement doesn't really ring true, but we will see more detail on the government's plan heading into next year's election. Also, Labor will unveil its new ambitious policy after that Glasgow summit. Bowen saying that it will be announced in coming weeks. And South Australia has announced its plan to open borders and relax COVID restrictions by December. But the move 
could put an end to its open border with Western Australia. We intend to remove most of those restrictions once we get to 90% double vaccinated, 12 and over, which I'm hopeful that we will achieve uh, before Christmas this year. That's South Australian Premier Stephen Marshall speaking there. So vaccinated travellers from all states and territories will be able to enter South Australia without quarantine once the state is 80% double dosed, while other rules like mask mandates will be loosened once they hit that 90% mark. Isn't that an incredible target to actually get to? Yeah, we'll see if they do. I mean, here in Queensland, they're now conceding. Everyone's starting to concede that we will never get to that 90% Mm. mark. So we're really starting to scramble now around some of those rules with international travel and quarantine. So it'll be interesting to see if South Australia can get to Mm. that mark too. Well, it was good news for the Tilly family. That's um, a border that uh, separates a few members of our family. (laughs) So that's a good thing. A former chief of staff to Gladys Berejiklian has told ICAC the former premier told her about her relationship with fellow MP Daryl Maguire, but assured her that it had ended before she took the office of premier. The reality is she told me it was a historic relationship and then she has subsequently said it's not. So that's Sarah Cruikshank giving evidence to the corruption inquiry into Gladys Berejiklian yesterday. When Cruikshank was asked by the assistant commissioner yesterday if the former premier had lied... Crookshank said she was uncomfortable saying that, but there wasn't really a different way to categorise it. The reality was, we found out last year, that the Premier's relationship with Maguire had lasted until last year, 2020. Yeah, Crookshank said that if she had known that it was going longer than the uh, former Premier had said that it was, that she would have had a bit of a chat to her about, you know, how that looked, the optics of that, and would have given her some advice around that. And gambling giant Crown has managed to hold on to its licence to operate its Melbourne casino, despite a Royal Commission finding it unfit to run the venue. But there are a big list of conditions for it to keep holding that licence. Absolutely. Commissioner Ray Finkelstein accused the company of disgraceful and unethical conduct, but stopped short of forcing it to give up the rights to run the Southbank Casino. Yeah, instead they'll have two years to get their stuff together um, under the supervision of a government-appointed special manager who will oversee all aspects of the business. It's kind of extraordinary the powers that this special manager will have. They'll be able to override pretty much everyone on the board. They're not board appointed, Mm. but any decision that this person makes will supersede even the CEO. So interesting to see how that's going to play out into the future. Yeah, and the other interesting part of this is that James Packer is being ordered to sell down his 37% share in Crown to 5% or less. So that'll, right. that'll really restrict his input and his stake in this company. And South African cricket star Quinton de Kock has pulled out of an upcoming T20 World Cup match after players were ordered to take a knee in a stance against racism. Yeah, and he refused to do that, um, he says, for personal reasons. So Cricket South Africa on Monday said it would require all players to do this because it was an important gesture considering South Africa's history. England's Ashes chances have been boosted, meanwhile, after superstar Ben Stokes confirmed he will be coming to Australia to compete in the series. He's overcome some injury and mental health pressures recently. All right, thanks, Katrina. We'll catch you again soon. Uh, It's time to take you deep into this controversial Japanese marriage.
All right, now to Japan's Harry and Meghan wedding. Annika, you and I both knew nothing about this story before we looked into it for this episode, and it's a really fascinating royal romance. Yeah, finding myself following it now, though. This is quite an interesting story, and of course has a few parallels with another big wedding we've had recently. Overnight, Princess Marco left the imperial family to marry her commoner sweetheart, Kamoro Kay. And now they'll go and live in America, just like some famous British royals. Yeah, so we're going to get the full story from an Australian expert in Japanese culture. Dr Tom Bordenet is a senior lecturer at Macquarie University. He also speaks Japanese. Tom, starting with the broader picture of the imperial family in Japan... Are they similar to the British royals where they don't have any role in governing the country directly, but they serve more as cultural figureheads? That's a really good analogy. According to the post-war constitution of Japan, the emperor represents the, quote, symbol of the nation and is supposed to represent this bastion of Japanese culture. So this was instituted after World War II in order to move society away from the emperor worship that had typified society up until that point as part of the broader democratization of Japan. That being said, Whilst the emperor has no formal role in government beyond convening the diet, so the the parliament, the emperor is kind of viewed by most Japanese as this symbol of Japanese culture. And while some people can be fairly apathetic towards the imperial family in a political sense, there is great investment into the imperial family's role as this symbolic structure that keeps Japan together. Is there a cultural love for them within society? And does that go to all members of the family or are some more popular than others? So to speak about veneration and love towards the imperial family, we we really need to kind of think about the political split in Japanese society because, yes, conservatives in particular will look to the Japanese royal family or the imperial family with quite a lot of veneration and respect In particular, they look to the kind of branch line. So the Emperor Emeritus Akihito, the current Emperor Nobuhito, and the Crown Prince, the Prince Akishino. And they look to him all as quite kind of almost as if they're trying to return to that veneration of the Emperor that we saw in wartime society. The general public look towards them more, I guess, in in many ways, it's like that kind of celebrity focus that we see in, for instance, the British tabloids and as well as the Australian tabloid culture. That being said, we haven't seen tabloid interest in the royal family of Japan like we have with our own royals here in Australia until very recently. And that's partly this royal wedding between Princess Mako and Komodo Ke has uh, played a, a role in boosting that tabloid-style interest. And that's thus permeated an awareness of the personal lives of the next-generation royals, if you will, so Mako and her um, cousins. That's, I think, really been a very interesting shift. Often when we look at the British royal family, we do so with a little bit of scorn or tongue-in-cheek. They're the butt of jokes with comedians and they've had some huge embarrassments over the years. I know that in other Asian countries, it can actually be 
close to illegal to have a derogatory thing said about them. So I just wondered, you know, you talk about conservatives liking them, but is it accepted to sort of joke about them? No, not at all. Whilst Japan doesn't have any really strong les majestés laws, for example, like Thailand, it is a cultural taboo to talk about the emperor and the imperial family in ways that are less than respectful. And you'll notice that even with some of the controversies that have been circulating recently around Princess Marco and her marriage to this foreigner, Commodore K, none of it has been about Princess Marco. Okay, so let's put the focus on this couple and this story that's created so much controversy. They have finally been married in their ceremony yesterday. Tell us about her. Can you explain where she fits into the imperial bloodline? Is her position a bit like Harry's, where she's the the child of the future emperor, but not actually second in line to the throne? So she is the daughter of the current crown prince, um, Prince Akishino, who is the younger brother of the current emperor. And That being said, she is not in direct line for the throne, not because of the fact that she is actually the oldest child of the crown prince, but the law of imperial succession in Japan mandates that only a male heir can um, come to the throne. So actually, that's her younger brother, Prince Hisahito, who is the future emperor. So she sits within the imperial family, but actually, as of her marriage she is no longer a member of the imperial family because the laws around the succession and the management of the imperial family in Japan mandates that if a female member of the royal family marries a commoner, then that female member of the royal family must give up their imperial status. So technically, she is no longer Princess Mako. She is now Komuro Mako, the wife of And what do we know about her husband? Was he well known before this? Who is he? Before the the general public became familiar with Commodore K in his role as fiancé to Princess Marco and, of course, now husband, he was most well known for appearing in an advertising campaign for a beach holiday resort. He was basically their, their college sweethearts. They met in college, so in university. The story is that they met in a restaurant on campus and she was kind of taken in by his smile and he was taken in by her sense of confidence. And they, they were dating. It was It's a love match in, in many ways. They, they are kind of sweethearts. And they were together until 2017 when they announced their engagement publicly through the Imperial Household Agency. And that's when all of this controversy really began to circulate. So you said before that the media is kind of reticent to really criticise the royals, which I imagine put a lot of the focus on him because they might have a more gloves-off approach to a commoner uh, marrying a royal. So I even noticed that his ponytail was the subject of much attention. How much heat has he been copping? He's basically copped all the heat. And gloves off approach is an apt metaphor because not only has he found himself the center of the media storm, because as you rightly pointed out, as a commoner, he can be spoken about, he can be written about, 
but also kind of conservatives and particularly people online. Princess Marco will enter what is known as his family register on marriage. So she leaves the family register of the imperial family and becomes a Komodo, hence connecting the Komodo name to the imperial family. So they, of course, were interested to, to kind of find out who is this guy who's appeared on the scene and the news media, right-wing conservatives and um, alt-right commentators online ended up digging up something quite controversial which was a scandal around potential fraud on behalf of his mother and a former fiancé. It's alleged that he lent them almost 4 million yen, that's approximately 50,000 Australian dollars, and that some of that was used to pay for his education. And then when his mother and this fiancé split up, they didn't return the money. They said it wasn't a loan it was like gifted and, and it was for him, it was only a small fraction of what he paid for, for his education. And most of it was through, you know, scholarships, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact of the matter is this has led to, as I said, the, this Neto Uyo in particular, these conservative right-wing internet users and social media discourse makers to kind of brand him a quote-unquote Yakuza, like that's the term that's been used and that he's kind of entering the imperial family with impure motives and that perhaps he was after the money that a woman leaving the imperial family is entitled to, which is approximately 1.3 million Australian dollars. When I think about Japanese culture, I think of it as being very different to our Western cultures, but this story seems to suggest that they're grappling with a lot of the same issues. You know, a commoner marrying a royal seems to sort of point to that debate about privilege and wanting a fairer society and flattening the class structure. Even the point about his ponytail and him being more of a modern kind of man points to a tussle between conservatives and progressives about the changing nature of masculinity. I mean, is that how you see it? Is Japanese society actually, and and through the prism of this story, grappling with some of the same things that we do? I think that that's certainly true. So whilst there is substantial differences between, you know, Australian society and Japanese society, of course, both nations are developed economies, liberal democracies, and there's a lot in common between the kind of experiences of everyday people. And in particular, Japanese society, much like our own Australia, is a space in which young people feel a particular kind of precarity. They feel that the future is perhaps unstable, uncertain. They're dealing with rising cost of living and um, kind of unstable work. And I feel that this, this concern over, you know, older conservatives in particular, bashing Commodore K for wearing, you know, a ponytail of all things, and as you quite rightly suggested, representing a new kind of manhood, is, is kind of boiling down into young people's desires for some kind of new expression of life. And I think from the social media discourse that I have been seeing from Japanese young people in favour of the marriage, particularly young women, this also boils down to the right of a young woman, Princess Mako, to choose mm. who she marries and who she loves. Mm. And Japanese society is a society that still puts immense pressure on women to conform to very, very stereotypical notions of femininity tied to motherhood, 
And this kind of concern over the control of a woman's romantic and, by implication, sexual life has um, resonated with young women in Japan in particular. And of course, as uh, quite a few of them have pointed out, that, you know, Commodore K's ponytail is kind of attractive. Yeah, he's hot. <laughs> so what's the problem? What does Happily Ever After look like? I believe they're moving to America, which is another kind of parallel to Harry and Megan, how's that going to play out? Will they still face lots of scrutiny? Will they disappear and become like normal civilians? Or what happens from here? Commodore K has a, a job at a prestigious New York law firm. So they're returning. He's been in, in the States for the last three years, actually. So they're they're going back to live there. Of course, Princess Mako, or Mako Komodo, more accurately, is now a private citizen and um, will move to America to be with her husband. But I don't see this dying down anytime soon. That was Dr. Tom Bordenet from Macquarie Uni explaining this beautiful love story, although controversial one. Sounds very stressful as well, Annika. Yeah, good luck to them, though. Huge pressure you can just imagine in a society like Japan's. But, you know, the wedding's gone ahead. That's surely a nod from the family that maybe they can be happy together. Yeah, hopefully they have a good life in America, I guess. Like with the British royals, that'll come down to how they're treated by the media. Tomorrow on The Briefing, some fascinating insights into what happened on the Alec Baldwin film set. Listener.